Hello everybody and welcome to the March 15, 2021 edition of Peaceful Globalist Review. I'm your host, the Peaceful Globalist, Ephraim Josine. And ladies and gentlemen, last week marked the end of the 52nd week Peaceful Globalist Review had been on the air. Do you know what that means? That means we've made it past the one year mark. And let me just say, this podcast originally just started, as I was already considering doing a podcast for a few months before, this just started as something I was doing after the lockdown started in my home state. I didn't expect it to go on for this long, but here we are, one year later. A full year later. And I, I just can't believe it. I, I really can't believe it. A full year. And in honor of that, by the way, because again, normally I try and do about 20-25 minutes worth of commentary. We're going to be doing at least 40 minutes worth of commentary today. Is that possible? Well, let's find out. I used to not really have a set limit for this show. I used to just do episodes. And however much there was, that'd be how much I'd talk about. But I wanted to create some kind of structure, and we tried three segments. I think about 20-25 minutes is really what works the best, in case there's one thing I really want to talk about. I don't have to go rushing for a new third story that I'm just not interested in after I check out. But we're going to be doubling that today, and only today. And let me just say, a lot's happened since this podcast started there was the 2020 election, obviously. We changed presidents. There was the George Floyd protest. There was the coup in the Capitol. There's been so much going on this past year. And you know what? I just want to say this right now. The current date that if... That at the very least I have to make it through, I thought was going to be the election. I thought after that, if Biden won, I'd be perfectly happy signing out. Then I wasn't. Then I wasn't. There was no real concrete date I could sign out for the Biden administration, truth be told. Um, and then it really hit me. There's this doctor I used to know who every year he came into office after the first of the year, he'd say, I think I have five more years left. And I think he's still doing that, and he's in his 90s now. That, that's how I feel right now. I feel like we've made it through one year... I have five more left, okay? And I'm going to feel that next year, and I'm going to feel that next year until I actually do have five more left, at which point I won't recognize it, and I'll continue doing this for another ten. That's basically going to be the life of Ephraim Josine. But no, I love doing this. I really do. I love getting my opinions out there. I love just talking about the news, breaking it down, exposing ideologues, and doing so much more, and it's absolutely amazing, and I'd, I'd do this forever if I could. And I hope I can. I really hope this can be the big thing I do. This and my books and my Medium blog, I love doing them so much. I do want to make a career out of this. I've been trying to do such a thing. And as of right now, we do have a small audience. But you know what? I'm happy with what I have for a first year. Share these episodes around, by the way, if you like them. If you want me to have a bigger audience. Also, update on friend of the show, Hyperdash. You might remember on Friday I plugged her GoFundMe. Well, I'll just give you guys a quick update as to where that's at. First off, she's lowered the amount that she's asking for from $5,000 to $3,700. As of right now, she has $1,855 through the GoFundMe. Her most recent tweet on the topic, however, says she's gotten $2,000 if you include various commissions and other ways of financially supporting her, 
that she has received since the GoFundMe started. Um, again, I'm very happy about this. I'm very happy. Again, HyperDash is an amazing person, and she is someone who should be living comfortably and happily, and it is amazing to see people come together and do this for her. A link to the GoFundMe will be in the show notes page, and if you also want to buy a t-shirt from her or something, I'll also link her TeePublic account in the show notes page. Again, if you want to, those t-shirts come at 20 bucks each, so you're still helping, but again, every little bit helps. If you got anything, please donate it, or spread the link around to someone who can donate to it, or just do something, guys. Just do something. Okay, we're already halfway there. I don't want to see this fail, especially when the end is in sight. Anyway, on Saturday, former president of Bolivia, Janine Anes, was arrested after a warrant was put out on her arrest the day before. For those who don't know, Janine Anes was the president of the country of Bolivia, from 2019 until 2020, essentially just under a year, and she took power. You ready for this? You ready for this? She took power after a coup. And why did that coup occur? Because she convinced the population that the previous president, whose name I'm going to butcher, Evo Morales, was not actually re-elected, but instead rigged the election in 2019. That, by the way, came from a report that was entirely discredited last year. Whoops! Now, after a 2020 election, a man named Louis Arc came into power in such a landslide. For those who don't know, Bolivia typically does two rounds in their elections. Some countries do this. I know France is one of them, where in the first round you have tons of candidates running, and then assuming no candidate gets more than a certain threshold, usually that threshold is 50%, there is a second round with the top two candidates. In 2020, this man, Louis Arce, I, again, I probably butchered that name, was so popular, they didn't even need to do a second round. So this man gets power, and there were no calls of bipartisanship by the media, or there might have been, I don't know, Bolivia's media, but there were no calls of bipartisanship, there were no calls of working together and putting all of that behind us. Instead, what this man did, the president of Bolivia, Louis Arc, again, almost certainly pronouncing that name wrong, is he decided he was going to arrest the person who orchestrated the coup. Now, you might remember a few months ago, over two months now ago, in fact, there was something not quite like that, but similar to it, where a bunch of people marched into the Capitol, attempted to overthrow the United States government. They did not succeed, mind you. They attempted to. At behest of completely nonsensical allegations of voter fraud promoted by Donald Trump, the then President of the United States. Now, after that happened here, we essentially asked, attempted coup? I mean, seriously now, what is that? Do they give a Nobel Prize in attempted chemistry? And then it became controversial to take away their Twitter accounts. 
Now, as I've said, I don't know anything about this Lewis Ark person whose name, again, I am definitely pronouncing wrong. But I will at the very least give him this. He will serve out the rest of his term. And can the same be said about Joe Biden? That, I do not know. The major difference after that insurrection was we now have a military occupation in Washington, D.C., Side note, we already give the president secret service. You'd think doing something like this would be a little bit more obvious, but I guess not. However, Republicans have already made some attempts to completely get rid of the military occupation. Lauren Boebert, for example, who, might I add, showed insurrectionists around the Capitol the day before it took place and tweeted, today is 1776, the day the insurrection took place, has called for the end of the occupation, as has Matt Gates, who said it was actually the doing of Antifa. Gee, a far-left organization getting the blame when a far-right organization attacks a nation's capital. Where, where have I heard that before? Now, regarding the Janine Annezes of the United States, Joe Biden is faced with two options. Either he acts like Janine Annezes' successor, or he ends his presidency like her predecessor did. Those are really the only two options right now, far as I'm concerned. Okay, Joe Biden can either take a stand against this, or he can be overthrown. That's what the, that is the most realistic two solutions right now. Okay, those are the two things most likely to happen. Either Joe Biden takes a stand against this, or he's overthrown. And again, I don't like that. I don't want that to happen, and that's why I'm telling Joe Biden, dude, take some notes from this guy. He seems to have it figured out. Seriously, he does. Say what you want about him. Again, he's a socialist. I don't like that. But he definitely will remain in power. Will Joe Biden remain in power in 2024? Will there even be a 2024 election? Or will we be all praying to Ted Kaczynski and living in mud huts like... Donald Trump was going to do, assuming he got a second term. I don't know. I really don't know. And the fact that I don't know is very, very worrying. Okay? Guys, I'm going to be blunt with you. I would love nothing more than to come out here and say, Oh my God, Joe Biden's doing an amazing job. You all can check out. You don't have to worry. It can just be me and a few other nerds talking about politics. I can't do that. It would be very dishonest for me to do that. First off, because doing that is what caused Donald Trump in the first place. Um, but second off, because everything is not fine right now. Not everything is fine at this moment. There are massive systemic issues that we need to address, okay? And if Joe Biden does not want to address them, then he is essentially telling his adversaries, he's essentially telling the people who, who tried to hold a coup on the 6th that he is on their side. That's how it is right now. Either Joe Biden does something or he says he's on their side. And at which point, Joe, if you are, just step down. That's what I'm going to say, just step down at that point. But enough about how weak... 
our leader currently is. Anyway, you might remember a week or two ago, I covered Lauren Witzke, the failed Delaware Senate candidate who ran against Chris Coons in 2020, didn't even get 40% of the vote, arguing with Rick Gurnell, who, if you don't know, by the way, is a homosexual. I, I mention that because he seems very fond of mentioning that. About LGBT issues and the Republican Party, and I was reading it and laughing hysterically. I'll link to that episode in the show notes page. Well, um, about a week ago now, I'm a little late to the party on this, but I saw it yesterday and I just had to show you all some of this. She had a debate. It was a two-on-two debate on this channel called CTMZ. Not a podcast I've heard of, admittedly. On the issue of where Republicans should go on gay issues in the future. Now, on her side, you've already know Laura Witzke if you listen to the podcast. But on her side was also John Doyle. Now, you may not know who John Doyle is. But I actually know him pretty well. And the reason why is because I actually read a really glowing profile on a website I frequent not too long ago. In the profile, the man in question says, I don't know anything about John Doyle. This is the first video of his I've seen, but I would be ready to vote him into office based on this presentation alone. Uh, he also says that Doyle should be a model for young conservatives in the future. Now, it's at this point that I note that profile was written by Andrew Anglin, the founder of the Daily Stormer, and it was posted once again on the Daily Stormer. The other thing I want to note about John Doyle is, despite being the only one in that debate that identified as male, he was somehow the most feminine-looking person in that debate. Okay, that's not true. I just wanted to be mean because I hate John Doyle. But on the other side was Catelyn Borzenko, and I was going to say I had never heard of her. But then I remembered I actually had heard of her. You guys remember that PragerU video, the rally that changed my mind from July two, uh, 2020? She was the presenter in that video. It's also the video where she said that Donald Trump's rallies are essentially rock concerts for him, which I assume she meant as a good thing, proving that, among other things, she has never seen the wall. Then there's Blair White, the transgender YouTuber who I think just makes her entire career complaining about other trans women. Sometimes justifiably, to be clear, there are definitely videos of her that I've agreed with, mostly about child predators. But what I found to be very odd is that White's not actually on the right politically. And I, I don't mean, like, in some gatekeepy sense, for full context, I'm not on the right either. Although, when I take the political compass test, I get a further right result than she actually gets. For those who don't know, she uploaded a video of her taking the political compass test. And, at the very end, you know when it actually gives you your political compass score and, like, there's the dot and the compass? She actually faked that, and I'll link a video in the show notes page as well. It's 35 seconds long. I can't play it because it's so heavily based on video. Um, but it shows that, yeah, she directly lied about her political compass test results to look good to right-wingers. Now, mind you, either way, she gets basically center, slightly libertarian. The only difference is, in her faked version, she gets slightly to the right. 
In the real version, she gets slightly to the left. Either way, she's basically a centrist with a small libertarian leaning. And I should note, again, there's nothing wrong with that. that that's basically where I am, too. But if she wants to do this whole game of, I'm a conservative, I'm a conservative, and also transgender because I'm just so different, I'm not like other girls, <laughs> then at the very least, I expect her to actually be what's tr traditionally considered a conservative in the U.S. And of course, we can get into the debate of whether or not most of what's called conservatism today is actually conservatism or is instead just more moderate libertarianism, but that's a very different debate we're not getting into right now. Instead, we're just focusing on the fact that Blair faked her political compass test results because she's a liar. Anyway, on to the debate itself. There really wasn't much. It was primarily just Borisenko and Witsky are having a little back and forth about the fact that Borisenko's husband is an immigrant. And not really much else. But the arguments on both sides were rather simple. Witsky and Doyle argued that, well, you can't turn your back on the conservative Christian base of the Republican Party. Although what I find interesting is Witsky primarily argued from the position of actively being against these things. She was a firm crusader against the LGBT agenda. Meanwhile, Doyle didn't so much take that position as he just said, C come on, man, we can't... We can't focus on everyone, okay? You know, we, we can't focus on every person. You know, we gotta keep these people in mind. He didn't actually come out against this at any point in the debate. I'm, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. Well, okay, I think there was one part where he said that the reason why homosexuality is no longer considered a mental illness is because the American Psychological Association was pressured by LGBT groups, and I assume they were also pressured to write various peer-reviewed papers that explained the change, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, that was completely idiotic. Meanwhile, Borisenko and White essentially argued that, hey, Donald Trump won once, and he wasn't focused on the LGBT stuff. So, therefore, they win when they don't talk about the LGBT stuff. And let me tell you, by the way, it's actually not the best look when the one person who's actually ran for office out of those four, as I love mentioning, completely lost. Witsky lost. She's the only one of those four who's actively run for office. So I have no idea why any of these people think they know the future of winning elections. Borisenko, I should also note, did not come out against talking about these issues, but instead said the only way you can actively implement social conservatism is to win elections. And they can't do that if they're talking about uh, how anti-gay they are. Now, once they're in office, they can do whatever they want. Essentially, it, listen, if you're a social conservative, just be a grifter. That's Caitlin, Bo that's Caitlin Borisenko's advice. Uh... <laughs> So yeah, I essentially summed up the entire hour in, what was that, three, four minutes? But th there's one part I wanted to show you guys, okay? So Whitsky and White are having a back and forth here on the, to on the topic of whether or not allowing adults to transition will then lead to children transitioning. Uh, White says that she's against child children transitioning, and just, just listen to Whitsky's reply. I don't really know how much you know about me, but I'm probably 
the most vocal anti-children transitioning person on the internet. It's what I'm, it's well, I let let you speak. The best thing you can do for us is grow out your mustache and tell people not to live like you. Uh, (laughs) You know, obviously I can point out that statement is transphobic. I will not point that out though, because that's the point. It's supposed to be. Uh, I will point out, first off, imagine being Blair White in that debate. You know, especially considering she and a few other people, this isn't like a connected group or anything, I should know. This isn't a connected group of people um, who are trying to make the Republican Party more pro-gay. This is just a group of people on social media who have no connection. But, like, people like her and Richard Gurnell... And a few others have basically spent their careers saying that actually you can be a conservative, you can be a Republican who's pro-gay. And then, (laughs) Lauren Witzke, who considers herself essentially the heir to Trump's throne, is out there saying, no, grow out your mustache. Now, I'd make fun of that more if that weren't also my advice to John Doyle. I'm being serious, I'm being serious, John. I have some really good advice for you. So, one, stop holding the beliefs that put you on the same side as Lauren Witzke and Andrew Anglin, okay? Two, grow out your mustache. Now, you may think that's optional. It's not. You have to grow out your mustache. You don't have a mustache right now, John. So, growing it out will actually be really easy. I just want to see anything more than you have right now, okay? And three, tell others not to live like you. And by that I mean tell others not to live a life where you're both on the same side as Lauren Witzke and Andrew Anglin. And also, don't even have a mustache to show for it. Uh, Fun fact, by the way, did you guys know, and I think it was ancient Greece, it might have been ancient Rome, you were considered a man only if you had a beard. And only men were allowed to be in plays, okay? So that means every woman was played by a man with a long beard. And let me just tell you, I'm starting to think this gender role idea is kind of stupid. Am I the only one getting that impression? Anyway, uh, here's a story from NPR. Vatican says Catholic Church cannot bless same-sex marriages. The Roman Catholic Church cannot bless same-sex marriages. No matter how stable or positive the couple's relationships are, the Vatican said on Monday. The message, approved by Pope Francis, by the way, don't all you liberals love how you stanid, stanid, is that a word? It is now, Pope Francis for all this time. At the end of the day, he's just slightly less socially conservative than the people before him, and not really much else came in response to the questions about whether the church should reflect the increased social and legal acceptance of same-sex unions. Does the church have the power to give the blessing of two unions of a person of the same sex, the question asked. Negative, replied the Vatican's coguration. I don't know how to pronounce any of this. I'm sorry, I'm not in any way Catholic. Uh, For the doctrine of faith, which is responsible for defending Catholic doctrine. The church says its answer regarding same-sex couples declared illicit any form of blessing that tends to acknowledge their union as such. 
The message underlines the church's insistence that marriage should be limited to a union between a man and a woman, saying that same-sex unions involve sexual activity outside of marriage. I mean, I guess that's technically correct if you define marriage specifically to exclude them. In the Vatican's view, same-sex marriages are not pass of God's plan for families and raising children. Now, it should be clear, it should be clear they did clarify one important thing. Because of the Vatican's stance on marriage, critics have accused the church of treating LGBTQ people as lesser members of its congregation. In an apparent response to those concerns, the Vatican said on Monday, that's today, that its declaration is not meant to be unjust discrimination. Oh, so it's not unjust discrimination, it's just... Just discrimination. Oh, that's so much better, so much better. And of course, there is some hypocrisy at play. The Vatican, for example, invested in Elton John's film Rocket Man. I think, when, when was this? This was oh, 2019 or 2020, I forget which one. Uh, 2019, okay, which made a great profit, by the way, and was specifically about Elton John's gay marriage. But... You know, that doesn't matter. That Making money is okay. That That's the number one rule for the Vatican, and has always been the number one rule for most religions, truth be told. It's if it makes you money, then it's good, okay? No matter what, it's good. If it doesn't make you money, then it's bad. That's really how it works. God works in very greedy ways, it turns out. Now, here is my opinion on this. The Vatican can have whatever view it wants. I really don't care. Now, for those who don't know, I am a bisexual. I was even in a same-sex relationship for six months not too long ago. However, if I were to ever officially enter a same-sex marriage, or an opposite-sex marriage for that matter, a legal recognition of my relationship, I wouldn't want the Vatican to be anywhere near it, because I'm an atheist. And I'm definitely, like, I am a total atheist. I've made this clear before. I wouldn't want the Vatican anywhere near it. If it disagrees, then okay, it can go over there and do what it wants. What's going to happen? What's really going to happen if they're over there with their opinions and I'm over here breaking, not paying any attention to their opinions? Now, if they actually made some attempt to enforce this in the United States, I'd be very much against that. But as of right now, they're basically just screaming at clouds, far as I'm concerned. And they have every right to do that. They really do. The Vatican basically does nothing now except scream at clouds and make money. Which, hey, if that works for you, that works for you. For that matter, I should also note that I do not understand why people consider this to be shocking. Pope Benedict, the pope before this, followed the tradition of all the other popes of being hardcore social conservatives. And while Pope Francis is a little bit more socially liberal, he has said that God does make people gay. He has directly gone against the, the idea that families should kick out gay children, he's still at the end of the day a social conservative, no different than any of the other popes that have run the Catholic Church for centuries. And just expecting him to be different because he's a little better on the gay issue, he's a little bit better on climate change. Okay, well, 
then you're naive. It's that simple. You're just naive at that point. Sorry, this guy, at the end of the day, is the exact same as all the other ones. He's just a little nicer. That's what it comes down to. Pope Francis is just a little nicer. And the liberal worship of him, as if he were a god, is, to be blunt, completely nonsensical. At the end of the day, he still agrees with all the crazy stuff all the other popes believed. He just also disagrees with a little bit of the crazy stuff as well. At the end of the day, he holds basically the same views as the other popes, is my point. But again, it doesn't really matter. What's Pope Francis going to do? What's the Vatican going to do? Come over here to Ohio and, for, and make it so I can't get legally married? Okay, he can try that all he wants. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And if he tries, I will directly oppose him. I'll do everything in my power to oppose him. But as of right now, gay marriage is incredibly popular in the United States. Gen Z has more gay people, more lesbian people, more bisexual people, and more transgender people than any generation before. So social conservatism, is, as we currently think of it, as it was in the 2000s at least, is a dying breed. Okay, the kind of social conservatives Penn and Teller battled against on Penn and Teller's bullshit is a dying breed. And it has nothing left to offer the world except screaming at clouds for a little bit and its final gasp of air before it inevitably dies. And it will die soon, at least in the U.S. It won't be gone from this earth for a very long time, but in the U.S., the social conservatives are completely losing the battle, as they are in a good chunk of Europe. The social conservatives, at the end of the day, have lost, okay? They lost the culture war that they declared in the first place. Sorry, it's true. And if they do take it back, it's going to be a slow process that will face so much resistance that it's going to be nearly impossible. Okay, I'm sorry, but that's true. The social conservatives of old are a dying breed. And the five remaining people, all of whom like Nick Fuentes, who are trying to resurrect it, might as well just be trying to resurrect zombies, because that's about as easy, truth be told. Anyway, uh, there's this article in Newsweek by a guy named Gordon Chang, who I swear I've covered before, but I can't be bothered to find out where. Watch out! China cannot feed itself. Now, the article goes over the fact that the Chinese government has been increasingly relying on foreign imports for its food for a variety of reasons. And it's actually not a very bad article in most regards. However, then it starts talking about how China's going to deal with this problem. And the author, Gordon Chang, has uh, a very, very interesting hypothesis. Pascal thinks China, I had no idea who Pascal is, it was probably explained earlier in the article, but you don't need to know who he is for, to know this is nonsense, to solve its food problem will continue to buy farmland in Africa, Canada, and around the world. So they're going to continue doing what they're already doing. And this is going to be affected by its consistent importing how exactly? But it is also possible that she will try more aggressive measures to ensure food self-sufficiency. Well, wait a minute. Food self-sufficiency hasn't really been a big concern of the Chinese government at any point before now. 
It's been very happy relying on imports above all else. Your article even directly admits that. Um, and mind you, they are very interested in spinning numbers to make it look like they're sufficient, but actual self-sufficiency is only really going to be necessary if they can't keep the illusion going, which, for the foreseeable future, they will be able to. That's the thing. These people are assuming that Xi Jinping and the rest of the CCP is actually dedicated to something. Truth be told, it's a group of opportunists and nothing else. I mean, at the end of the day, the CCP is nothing more than a group of people who want to line their own pockets. That's what it comes down to. The people who rule over China are the people who are interested in keeping an image of for the people, but at the same time only really care about maintaining that image through propaganda as opposed to actually doing for the people things. This article is under the assumption that Xi Jinping really cares about self-sufficiency. No, he cares about, again, above all else, making it look like he's sufficient. As long as he can do that, which, if he can up until now, I don't see why he wouldn't be able to, then it's highly unlikely that he'd really worry about if they are or not. And this is under the assumption, by the way, that the Chinese government not only cares about self-sufficiency, but that the Chinese people care about self-sufficiency in the food market enough to be willing to support aggressive foreign policy measures specifically to keep that sufficiency, which, as established, doesn't exist. For a point of comparison, think about the energy markets. Now, there have been moves towards energy independence, sometimes we're energy independent, sometimes we're energy dependent, but the average American at the end of the day cares primarily about if that energy is affordable as opposed to if it's independent or not. Okay, and it's the same thing with a lot of different markets around the world. People really don't care about trade deficits like politicians think they do. Truth be told, if the U.S. entirely moved to imports, they had a massive trade deficit, no exports whatsoever, the average American really wouldn't care. Same thing in China. Same thing in most of the world. At the end of the day, again, trade deficits, uh, dependence and independence on various markets, are things political dorks talk about when they're bored, not something the average person even slightly cares about. How many times was energy mentioned during the 2020 campaign? Now, with that said, if there is a massive crisis, then it's possible something could evolve out of that. But as of right now, the CCP has done, again, according to this article, a very decent job at at least weathering the storm or making it appear as if there is no crisis. If there is a crisis, similar to what we saw with the energy crisis in the 2000s, then, yeah, that would lead to some effects, but as of right now, an increase in dependence is not the same thing as a crisis. If the U.S., for example, were to embargo China and therefore cut it off of its food supply, that would realistically lead to a massive change in markets, like how we changed energy completely and even went through an energy crisis in the 1970s. However, as of right now, again, as long as the illusion is being held, nothing is going to happen. Henry Kissinger often, and correctly, that's a sentence fragment a human being wrote, 
reminds us how Chinese leaders are devoted students of history and devise current strategies from successful ones in the past. Well, wait a minute, you're making the assumption that their current strategy isn't successful, which, again, by all measures, it completely is. Unless you can show me something from the Chinese Communist Party directly saying that they would completely change strategies, then I'm sorry, I'm not buying into this. Annexation, after all, is how the Quin, during the Warring States period of the 5th to 3rd century BC, succeeded in conquering others. Well, good thing things haven't changed between now and then, otherwise this may be a bad comparison. It first grabbed land from small neighbors to assure food supply in order to sustain its successful campaign against the large kingdom to unite China. Xi cannot be happy that China is increasingly dependent on a nation that, ha that he identifies as his enemy. He identifies it as an enemy for propaganda purposes. It's not actually an enemy to him. It's not an actual enemy state to him, at the very least. If it was, he'd be acting in a very different manner, again, to say the least. Uh, this is, any real conflict between the U.S. and China is primarily an illusion. I'm sorry, it's true. Any conflict that's being hyped by the media as evidence Xi Jinping considers us an enemy is primarily an illusion. If China considers us an enemy, why would it not embargo us by now? It has a very, very large trade deficit with the U.S., or the U.S. has a large trade deficit with it, at least, I should say. Why would it not embargo our economy and allow it to collapse? Why wouldn't he do that if he considers us an enemy? Is he playing some kind of long game? Because he's not doing a very good job at it. There are, consequently, bound to be geopolitical tremors when a China led by an insecure and militant regime decides it needs to obtain self-sufficiency in food. Well, when it does that, let me know. Until then, I don't really care about hypotheticals, guy from Newsweek. Anyway, that's all for tonight. I am Ephraim, and good night.